0: Good morning. We're glad to have you worshiping with us today. Um, If I haven't met you yet, my name is Pastor Megan. Um, I'm the pastor to children and families here at FSN. It's a lot of fun, Um, but I'm excited to be with you guys today. Um, So we're going through a series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And Pastor Virgil has kicked us off with that the last couple weeks, Um, done a great job. Um, And we're just kind of continuing here in that series today. So if you were here the first week, um, Pastor Virgil um, started off with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Pastor Virgil gave us a definition. What is a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he defined it as anyone we have an opportunity to show mercy to. Anyone we have an opportunity to show mercy to, or an opportunity to kind of like be neighborly to, that is our neighbor. Which um, really, especially today, we live in such um, a global world, right? So really, our neighbor can be basically anyone. Because with just a touch of a finger and a little device in my hand, anyone can be my neighbor, right? Um, We have Access to so many things, and it's all right there. But a neighbor is anyone I have an opportunity to show mercy to. And so Pastor Virgil kind of walked us through, just as a refresher, different kinds of neighbors we can have, right? So we have our geographical neighbor, right? The people we literally share fences with. The people that live in close quarters to us, that live close to us. We also have our marketplace neighbor, right? We have the people we work with. Maybe it's the people um, you say hi to as you walk in in the morning. Maybe it's someone you work next to, close to. Um, maybe it's the person in the classroom right next to you, right? Um, we have our marketplace neighbors, the people that we work with and see day to day. And then we also have our social neighbors, right? This is the people that we see in everyday life. Maybe it's the people you encounter at the grocery store. Maybe it's um, the person you run next to at the gym. Or maybe it's the person you play with, you know, you can, uh, if you or have a hobby with. Maybe it's the person you scrapbook with or play pickleball with, right? That person is your social neighbor, right? And so, Pastor Virgil has talked about how we have all of those neighbors, right? But really our neighbor is anyone we have an opportunity to show mercy to or anyone that we can act neighborly towards. So obviously this series takes some inspiration from Mr. Rogers, right? And so um, I am not as confident as Pastor Virgil, and I am not near as good of a singer, so I'm not going to sing to you. But some of the lyrics in his song are, I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. Hmm. I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. But today we're going to be looking at what do we do when that just isn't true. Right? There are times, right? Yeah. (laughs) I see some heads like nodding. I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. Well, maybe not just like you. Right? Right? So, what do we do when that isn't exactly true? Now, I have to admit some things to you. Now, I'm really hoping that if I'm just open and honest with you guys, that you guys will promise me that you won't judge me, okay? So, I have to admit that I am a really bad neighbor. I'm a terrible neighbor, and here's why. Because I hate being a neighbor, I hate having neighbors. Okay, So I grew up on a farm um, in Missouri, um, way, way, I mean, middle of nowhere. The closest town, the town on my address, Stark City, has 120 people. And we were like 25 minutes from the closest, like Walmart, McDonald's, all of that. So I did not grow up having neighbors. Um, if you stand at my parents' house, you can see one other house. And um, I did not know what it was like to have a neighbor, right? And having neighbors in town is different than having neighbors in the country, right? So we live on Judson. And because I live on Judson, I would not consider someone who lives on Horton to be my geographical neighbor, right? But if you live in the country, man, that's close. You know what I'm saying? And so it's a little bit different. So I didn't grow up having neighbors. In fact, Living in Fort Scott, this is my first time ever having residential neighbors, okay? Because I grew up in the country, I did go to college, stayed in the dorm. That's a whole nother experience in itself. Um, when Tyler and I were first married, we lived in a small town, Mineola, Kansas. It's just south of Dodge City. And we had neighbors ish. We lived in town, right on the edge. And across the street, there was like a really creepy motel and a sketchy gas station and then um, beside us we had a fire station and a bar and then behind us was a bank okay so we had kind of neighbors but not like residential neighbors right not consistent people who are always there neighbors right then we lived in ava we lived in the country didn't have neighbors couldn't see another house from our where we lived right um and so when we moved to fort scott it was like okay We're going to try out this whole living in town thing that people are all, like, talking about. And I'm like, okay, we can do this. I'm going to do it. And I was, like, in my head, I'm like, I'm going to be a great neighbor. Our grass is always going to be mowed. And I'm going to take cookies. And at Christmas, I'm going to, like, make them presents and go over. And guess what? We were here about one week, and I thought, "Mm, this neighbor thing is not for me, right? I don't like, I feel bad. I'm just not very neighborly, right? And it's because I'm selfish. Like, I'm super selfish. You see, when I think, hey, this is a great time to jam out to my music, right? To me, that's the right time to jam out to my music, right? But when I want to take a nap, but my neighbor wants to listen to music, right? You know, I'm selfish. I'm like, what I want is what is... I feel like is right, and I'm selfish, and I feel like I should just get to do it, right? And so I'm really not a good neighbor, right? I like my privacy. I'm not one of those people that wants to, like, walk to the car and stop and talk to my neighbors on the way. In fact, I'm probably, like, could really, God could really, you know, change my heart a little bit there. But um, so I'm really bad at this whole being neighborly thing, Right? I don't like when people show up unannounced. You know, I don't like when people are coming to my yard to see what I'm doing. Like, it's just, it's really bad. So please don't judge me. But it's just the reality of the situation. And so I am not a great neighbor, right? Sometimes we have difficult neighbors. In my situation, I'm afraid it's me. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's the person living next to you, right? But life is full of... difficult neighbors and so mr. Rogers sings he says I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you but here's the deal if we're being gut level honest there are people in our life that we cannot sing that about and mean it right there are people in our life that if we're being honest we have not always wanted to have a neighbor just like them you see some neighbors are difficult Now, when we're talking about, like, our geographical neighbor, those difficult neighbors may be the people, you know, who are playing their loud music at one in the morning. And when you're trying to have a baby sleeping, you know, that's a little bit hard, right? Or a geographical neighbor may mean they aren't respecting your privacy or your property, right? But then there's also this biblical sense of a neighbor, right? So if we define... um, A neighbor, as someone who we have an opportunity to show mercy to, right? But sometimes, even in the biblical sense, we can have difficult neighbors. Those difficult neighbors may be people who have hurt us, who have let us down, who have abandoned us, who have tempted and tried us. Now, having difficult neighbors is not a new thing, right? Basically, since people have been on this earth, I am sure that people have had difficult neighbors. In fact, if you have your Bible with you today, if you would like to turn to the book of Jeremiah, that's where we're going to be camping out today. So if you look at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is basically a collection of sermons from the prophet Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah is sent to the Israelites Um, to give a warning to the people. Now, if you're a biblical scholar, um, I'm going to use the term Israelites today. But really, in reality, Israel was at the time was broken into two kingdoms. So you had the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah was sent to the kingdom of Judah to deliver this message. But I'm still going to call them Israelites because they still come from the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's just way... It's just way easier. So Jeremiah is sent to the Israelites, and he he brings them a message, and his message is, hey, Israelites, you need to do two things. You need to repent, and you need to return. You need to repent of your sins. You need to repent of your disobedience, and you need to return back to God. You need to return back to this life that he has set before you and called you to. So... One time on talking about his show, Fred Rogers said this. He said, the world is not always a kind place. That's something all children learn for themselves, whether we want them to or not. But it's something they really need our help to understand. And so that's kind of where the Israelites keep finding themselves, right? it's where we all find ourselves. The world is not always an easy place. Sometimes it's a hard place, and it's a lesson that we all learn. And the Israelites kept finding themselves learning this lesson. Okay, the world is not easy. The world is a hard place. And so what God would do is God would send prophets to kind of help them understand what was going on. And that is why God sent Jeremiah. And so then you enter Jeremiah into the scene. And the hard thing is, is that Jeremiah is sent to help the people understand. But time and time again, the Israelites show this sort of pattern of not listening. Right. So so Jeremiah comes and he's bringing them this message. Hey, you need to repent. You need to return. And the people choose not to listen. You see, at the time, the Israelites were being disobedient to God. They were doing things that did not honor God. They were committing adultery. They were um, worshiping false gods. There's three kinds of people that over and over again in the Bible, God calls attention to that we're to take care of. That's the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And it says that at this time, they were, they were not taking care of them. They were neglecting them. In fact, they were even oppressing them. And so Jeremiah is sent to kind of call the people back to where they should be. And so God uses Jeremiah to deliver this message to the people. And Jeremiah starts telling them about this enemy from the north. In chapter 6, it says, Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, Why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, So now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. So because of the way that God's people have strayed, he is now about to discipline them. And we all know, especially if you're a parent, that true discipline is a form of love, right? It's a form of correction, of trying to get them back on the right path. And so his people have strayed, and God is saying, okay, now it's time. There's going to need to be some discipline, right? But he does, man, our God is a God of mercy, And second chances. And so he does, he gives them a second chance. Again, he sends Jeremiah to him and he basically says, Here's the deal. You have one more chance. This is it. In the children's wing, we have this really awesome slide, right? But there are moments whenever um, that slide becomes um, a tool for a little bit of rebellion, right? And so it's like sometimes in the children's wing, I have to sit there and say, you have until I get to five to get off the slide or else you lose your slide privileges for two weeks, right? And you sit there and you go, one, two, three, four, five, right? That's kind of what God was doing. He was kind of saying, okay, you have till I count to five or else there's going to be some discipline here, right? And so he's saying, here's your one more chance. If you change, if you really change, if you stop um, being disobedient, if you start following the path, then everything will be okay. Here's your one last chance. But guess what? They didn't listen. They didn't change. And so God said, okay, now it's the time you have lost your slide privileges. Here's the discipline, right? And so um, that's where we find ourselves today. So um, Jeremiah, in uh, chapter 7, he says, Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. You see, it is in our best interest to be obedient to God. It is in our best interest to be obedient to God. And so after this one last chance, the people still don't change. And so what the Lord does is he delivers them over to the people of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So God tells them to surrender. So you have this this foreign army that comes in. You have Babylon. And what they do is they take the Israelites and they carry them back to Babylon. And um, God allows it to happen. That's his discipline in this situation is that God allows the people of Israel to be put into exile. And so finally the time comes where the Israelites are going to be in exile, and they're told they're going to be in exile for 70 years. And then at the end of the 70 years, um, Babylon will be punished. They'll be repaid according to what they've done, and God's people will be restored. You see, God assures them before they go that he's not favoring the wicked, right? He's not saying, okay, you need discipline, so we're going to let these people do whatever, and it's just fine and dandy. He's saying, no, they are going to be my means of justice for this time, but I don't endorse their violence and idolatry. So there will come a time where they are punished and Israel is restored. But for now, for the time being, Israel finds themselves in exile Um, They're away from their home, they're away from everything they've known, their national identity, the temple, they are removed from that. And that's where we're picking up today, the Israelites are in exile. And so we come to our text which is Jeremiah 29. So if you have your Bible and you want to look, we're going to start um, in verse 4. And so Jeremiah writes this letter. He writes a letter from Jerusalem to the Israelites that are in exile in Babylon, and this is what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I'd say that if the Israelites didn't know before what it was like to have difficult neighbors, they were about to find out. And so they're sitting there in exile, and they get this letter from Jeremiah. And what does Jeremiah say? Does he say, oh, this is all a mistake. We're going to get it fixed really quickly. Does he say, oh, don't worry, deliverance is coming in a week. You're going to be out of this. No, that is not at all what he says. What Jeremiah says is he says, hey, it's going to be 70 years before change comes. 70 years. That's a long time. And God was telling them, listen, you are going to be here for a while, so make this your home. God is saying, you're going to be here for a long time, so your home, your neighbors, are now among the, among the people who have brought you away from your homeland. He says, hey, make your home among the people who have hurt you, among the people who are not like you, among the people who serve a different God from you, the people who are from a different place than you, have different values than you, make your home among them. They are your neighbor. And so, as Jeremiah is writing this to the Israelites, he tells them to do four things. The first thing that he tells them to do is plant, right? He says, hey, build your homes and settle. Plant your gardens and eat from them. You see, he's saying, Israelites, this is your life now, so you might as well settle in. You see, sometimes when we have something that happens in our life, kind of those gut punch moments, it's hard to imagine how when we have one of those moments, the world just keeps on moving. But it does. It just keeps going. And so God is saying, hey, keep on with your ordinary life because your ordinary life still matters, right? And so he's saying, okay, this thing happened to you. Don't stand there dumbstruck. Don't limit your investment and your surroundings because of your pain Settle in get to work And god tells them go ahead and multiply grow your family grow your people Increase your presence in this place. Don't decrease it So that's the first thing he tells them to do is to plant The second thing that he tells them to do is to prosper But here's the deal God does not say, okay, Israelites, go prosper. He says, okay, Israelites, seek the peace and the prosperity of the very same people who have placed you in exile. Doesn't that just blow your mind? So this sermon has been sitting on me for quite a while now, probably about six months. And, um, Whenever I do my devotions at night, um, what I usually do is I read through my devotional book, and then any scripture that it talks about, I go and I read the the passage, right? And so I was reading through my devotional book, and it got to Jeremiah 29, and I was having one of those days, and you, you know, sometimes we have seasons of exile in our life, right? We have seasons where we feel like what is familiar and comfortable has been stripped from us, and I was kind of in that season. And I was just like, ah, oh, Jeremiah 29, I know that one. I don't need to read it. And I felt God saying, no, Megan, you need to go read it. I have a word for you today. And I get to this point in where he's asking them to, to seek the prosperity of the very same people who have hurt them. Let me tell you, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But it is very, very hard when someone has hurt me for me to want for them to do well right and and maybe that's i told you i'm selfish but right when someone hurts us it's very hard to be like oh yeah they hurt me hope they're doing great you know but that is god says seek the peace and the prosperity of the very same people who have placed you in exile and there is some common sense you see you see for me i have this false belief that if someone who hurts me suffers Somehow it makes me feel better. But we all know once that happens, it's not really true, right? Just because someone who has hurt me suffers does not mean it actually makes my situation better. And God, God knows that's how it works. God knows the common sense behind it. He's saying, hey, Israelites, you live here now. So if Babylon does well, you do well. And so he says, seek the peace and the prosperity of this land that you are in. You see, if Babylon prospers, then the people who live there prosper, and that's you. And so he says, I want you to plant. I want you to build your home here, and I want you to prosper, and I want you to seek the prosperity of Babylon. And then the third thing that um, he tells them to do is to pray. This one's hard, too. Here's the deal. It is very difficult, I'd say almost near impossible, to hate someone that you are actively praying for. It is hard to maintain bitterness and resentment and anger towards someone that you are actively praying for. Let me tell you, there was a situation in my own life, someone I was very angry, very angry at, and I felt God telling me, Megan, I want you to pray for them every day. And I didn't want to do it and here's why because it's hard to stay angry at someone that you're praying for And so god goes to the israelites and he says I want you to pray I want you to pray for these people who have put you in exile Pray for your difficult neighbors I guarantee that it will change the way you see them So god has asked them. He says I want you to plant I want you to build your home I want you to prosper and I want you to pray and then here comes the last thing. Finally, some hope. So far, it's just, oh, do I really have to do that, right? But finally, some hope comes, and God says, last, I want you to plan. So God assures the people that he will once again bring them back home. So this is where we get a popular verse, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Okay, so remember earlier how I asked you guys not to judge me? We're just going to have a repeat of that, and once again, I'm going to say, if I tell you this, you have to promise not to judge me, right? So Tyler and I, we go to a lot of graduations, right? Children's pastor married to a youth pastor, it is like a whole season of life. You know you have Christmas season, we're starting chief season, okay? Yeah. Okay, well Tyler and I have what we call graduation season. It's basically the whole month of May and it is like what we do. It's like our, you know, whole life, okay? So, we love we love our students. We really do. We love your kids. We love supporting them. But I do have to say, after about 15 or 20 graduations, they all kind of start to resemble each other, right? And so we go to so many graduations that we have started to um, play this game. And during first service, whenever I was telling them, it was like as it came out of my mouth, I realized how bad it sounds. So please just, you know, bear with me. But we like to play this game. And so what we do is anytime we go to a graduation or like a baccalaureate or whatever we play this game we call Bible verse bingo. And what it is is there are certain verses that are like the staple, right, for a graduation. This is one of them. Jeremiah 29:11 is one of them. Also, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, things like that. So we have this kind of mental list and anytime we go to like a graduation or a baccalaureate, if someone uses one of those verses, we're like nudging each other. Like, there it is. There it is. There's certain verses that you hear almost every year, and so it's just a way that we entertain ourselves, I guess. And so, um, and so this is one of them. Jeremiah 29 11 is one almost every year. At some point, we hear this verse, and that's totally fine. There are verses that are maybe more, like, culturally popular as well. And this is one of them. It's one you're going to be scrolling through your Facebook, and you're going to see it in nice, pretty lettering on someone's post. You know, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, And it's an awesome verse, and we like it for a reason. And it's a good reason. It kind of gives us, like, warm fuzzies on the inside, right? When we hear, God knows the plans he has for me, right? It plans not to harm me. It plans for me to prosper, okay? But... The truth is, um, I honestly think this is one of the most taken out of context verses, right? Um, Because a lot of times we use this verse to say, Okay, God, here are my plans, now do them, right? We take it in some moments and we're like, Oh, this is the plan God has for me. And then we use it to kind of justify our own going in a certain direction, right? And it's not bad to use verses like this to apply to our daily life, but we have to remember the context in the Bible, right? And so when we're looking at this, we need to remember God is speaking to a people, not a person, right? This is not an individual promise of prosperity, God is speaking to a certain people at a certain time and a certain place, right? And we can still apply it to our own life. That is absolutely okay. I believe the whole Bible can be applied to our own life, right? But we still have to keep it in its proper context. It does communicate to us an essential truth, and that is that God has plans and his plans are good. Right? You can rest in that every day of your life. God has plans, and His plans are good. But when we look at it in the context, it communicates to us a bigger truth. And this is what it it communicates to us that God's plans are always good, but they are not always easy. Right? God's plans are always good, but they are not always easy. And that's kind of what the Israelites were hearing. Okay, God has plans for us, His plans are always good but we're going to be in exile for 70 years, so they are definitely not always easy. You see, the thing is, is that God wasn't saying to the Israelites, hold on, I'm coming, I'll be here tomorrow. God was saying, Israelites, hold on, because you're going to be there for a very long time. In fact, whenever the Israelites got this letter, I imagine it had to have been pretty devastating. You see, he's saying, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, which means that most of the people who read this letter would have suddenly known, I'm not going home, right? If you got a letter today that said, okay, this is happening in 70 years, we know that most of us wouldn't be around to see that day happen, right? He's saying, you guys have some difficult neighbors, and you're going to have them for a long, long time. And so the people of Israel, they had to still rest in God's promise, right? They had to rest in the promise that God was going to bring his people back. And they had to rest in the fact that God's promises are sometimes bigger than just our own individual reality. And so they were resting in God's promise. God is going to bring them back. But God's also saying, okay, this is where you are now. You're in exile right now. You need to dig in. You need to get to work. And you need to live in such a way that I'm asking you. And God gives them the key. He does say that they have a hope and a future, right? And that future comes from seeking him. If you notice, it won't be by the Israelites' own power that they will be delivered, but by God's power and faithfulness that they will be delivered. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You see, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. But his own faithfulness is going to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. So how does that apply to us? We talk about being a good and godly neighbor. What can we learn from where the Israelites were at? And it's that sometimes, or maybe always, our neighbor is not limited to the people in our circle. Right? We cannot pick and choose our neighbors. And while we may not literally be in exile due to our disobedience, we live in a very Babylon-like world. Right? The sin of the world has created consequences that we live in every single day. And so just like the Israelites, our neighbors may include people that we don't like. It may include people who have hurt us. It may include people who have upended our lives and totally turned them upside down. Your neighbor may include the person who has devastated your life the most. Think about it. The Israelites, they lost their home. They lost um, their comforts, their familiarity, their rights, their national identity. These were the people that had totally devastated their lives, and yet God still said, now this is your neighbor. Just like the Israelites, our neighbor may be people who have a different background than us. It may be people, um, like for them, people of a different ethnicity, people of a different citizenship, people who have different values. And yet, nonetheless, God sometimes speaks to us and says, make your home here. You see, we're not to be an isolated people. Sometimes God calls to us and says, I want you to build your home. I want you to plant your gardens. I want you to seek their peace and prosperity. And I want you to look and know that your neighbor is not just the people you call your own. You see, difficult neighbors are not an option but they can become an opportunity. So here's what's so cool about how God can work in any situation. Have you ever heard the story of three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So this is a story of three men who, um, they're, they're living, and there's this king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He should sound familiar to us today, right? And he builds this monument, and every time the music plays, the people are to bow and worship this. But there are three men who say, nope, I'm not doing it. I know the one true God. And so as punishment, they are thrown into the fiery furnace. But by the grace and miraculous power of God, they are not burned. How about the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Have you heard that one? Right? There's a man named Daniel. Daniel. And he's devoted to God in his prayer time with God every day. And there are some men who don't like it. And so they go to the king, King Darius. And they say, King Darius, we think you should make a law that people can only pray to you. But Daniel stays devoted. And every day, he still prays to God. As punishment, he's thrown into the lion's den. But by the grace and miraculous power of God, he comes out. Without a scratch. You know, and I know what's so cool about these two stories is that both of them take place while Israel is in exile in Babylon. You see, our situation does not determine God's ability to work. Difficult neighbors are not an option, but they can become an opportunity. You see, in each of these two stories, these these men took their life, and used it as a testimony to what God can do. These men took their life amidst their difficult neighbors, and then whenever they stayed true, the people around them, they were compelled to acknowledge the existence of their God. They were compelled to acknowledge the existence of our God. The way that the Israelites lived among the Babylonians Provided an opportunity for the name and the glory of God to be made known The way they lived the way they acted Became their testimony of who God was You see you're going to have difficult neighbors In fact when I say that Whether it's in a geographical sense or in a biblical sense And I say we're going to have difficult neighbors I'm sure that some of you already have people in your head I know I do we're going to have difficult neighbors. You see, it's hard to have difficult neighbors when we know that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. So we're going to have people like that in our lives, whether it's through discipline or whether it's just through suffering or a consequence of sin in this world. We're going to have those difficult neighbors in our life. It's just a fact. It's just how it is but it creates an opportunity for God's glory in his name to be made known. See, Mr. Rogers, he was known for his sweaters, right? When we think of Mr. Rogers, we think sweater. And he had about two dozen sweaters, and they were all made by his mom. I think that's just so sweet, right? And his sweaters, um, one of them was actually taken, and it's put on an exhibit in the Smithsonian. You can go and you can see it today. It's in the Americana exhibit. You know what's so cool is that Mr. Rogers' sweaters became so well-known. The way that he lived his life so stood for something that they took one of his sweaters and it is now considered a representation of part of American culture and identity, right? Talk about living in a way that makes an impact on the people around you. You see, there wasn't anything magical about the sweaters. I mean, it's kind of cool that they were made by his mom, but there wasn't anything magical about the sweater themselves, but it was about the person who wore them, right? The way that he lived made them mean something, made them represent something, because he made the people around him his neighbor. You see, the way that he lived served as a testimony to what He believed. To what he valued. So, just in the same way, the way the Israelites lived in Babylon, it served as a testimony to what they believed, to who they served. So, let me ask you today what are you known for? What does your life preach? If someone were to take an artifact from your life and hang it in a museum, what would it represent? Even among the difficult neighbors, the ones who have hurt you, the ones who have let you down, maybe it's even just people you don't understand that have a different background than you, is the way that you live your life with those neighbors, what does it what does it preach? What's the testimony that your life gives? When you find yourself surrounded by the people you'd rather not have as a neighbor, do you still leave a neighborly legacy anyway and sometimes it seems like this is impossible especially when we're talking about people who have hurt us who have let us down sometimes it seems impossible god how can i plant my life near them how can i pray for their peace and prosperity and let me tell you sometimes it is impossible But in Matthew 22, you see some people, some teachers of the law, they came to Jesus, and they were trying to trip him up, and they asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandments of the law? And Jesus says, well, there's two. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the second commandment is not possible without the first one. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't first love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the seemingly impossible, it is impossible for you. But it is made possible when we seek after God. Because just like Jeremiah wrote to the Israelites, God says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you're going to find me. So you see, when you seek God with all of your heart, you can let your life be a testimony to the people around you. Even the difficult neighbors. Even those people that you would say, okay, if I'm being really honest, I haven't always wanted to be, have a neighbor like you. And there's going to be people like that always in life. But just like the Israelites, we have an opportunity to let our life speak, to let our life be a testimony to the God we serve. And when we do that, then maybe we really can finish Mr. Rogers' song. Let's make most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be my, could you be my, won't you be my neighbor? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're just... um, so humbled to be in your presence this morning. God, we thank you so much um, for speaking to us through your word. God, that you have provided a way for us to know you better. God, we just pray that you would be with us this week, Lord, um, with whatever difficult neighbors we may have, whether it's a literal difficult neighbor that we live next to or whether it's someone in our life, that you call us to be neighborly too, that you call us to show mercy to. Lord, we just ask that you would give us the strength to do that and the desire to do that. God, we know we don't have to do it on our own, but God, that we do it through through the power that you give us through your spirit. God, we love you so much. We ask that through us, people would know who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good day.